Hello and welcome, fellow music lover. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Travels in Music, the podcast that shares stories about music from all over the world and explores a musical planet. Thanks for joining me today. My guest today is an award-winning dancer, dance scholar, and one of the world's leading experts on the history of salsa dancing. Juliette McMains has a PhD in dance theory and history from the University of California at Riverside and is currently an associate professor in the dance program at the University of Washington in Seattle. As a salsa teacher, Juliette incorporates history lessons into her technique classes, educating students about the history of salsa music and dance, tracing both back to the Mambo era, which you'll learn about in today's episode. Juliette is also the author of Spinning Mambo into Salsa, Caribbean Dance in Global Commerce. As a budding salsa dancer myself, I wanted to speak to my guest today to better understand the history behind the world's most popular partnered dance form, to learn about the men and women who made it popular, as well as find out how one goes about writing a history of dance. Above all, in a time when salsa dancing has never been more popular around the world, I wanted to know, where did it come from, and where is it going? I learned a lot from our conversation, and I hope you'll also enjoy sitting in on my chat with the dancer and dance historian, Juliette McMains. First off, thank you so much for making time for me today. I really appreciate it. And if I if I sound a little funny, I'm, I'm battling a cold, so I hope I don't sound like too much of a bullfrog. Um, but yeah, thank you for being here. Sure. So the first question I'd like to ask you is: I'm curious about your earliest interest in dance and, and where your where your fascination with dance comes from. So what can you recall? What originally inspired you to uh, to start dancing? Ooh. <laughs> Um, I, I don't recall because I think I was born that way. Like, I think I was born to dance. Um, I think it was inside me from the beginning. Um, uh, but, uh, my mother studied ballet when she was a child and she was so bad that the teacher told her to quit and she was quite (laughs) traumatized by the experience. So she wouldn't actually let me study ballet when I was very young, um, uh, even though I, I begged her. Um, and so I, but I remember going to watch ballet class. A friend of mine was studying it and I uh, was uh, mesmerized by things that people might seem the simplest movements. I remember watching tendus, which is a very you know, basic exercise of the feet, uh, at the bar and being transfixed and thinking that was the most amazing thing ever. So I, I, I really was fascinated by dance from a very young age. Um, so I, I can't recall what drew me to it as a, as a child and why I was obsessed with it. Um, but, uh, I think once I started dancing, I think it was the, um, the ability to, um, express myself in a nonverbal and, and very physical way um, that was so compelling. So wh- where did your interest in salsa music uh, particularly come from? Well, um, I was a, a ballroom dancer. Um, I started ballroom dancing when I was in college, and I was uh, fascinated by the 
the interaction and the dialogue. So in that sense, I was fascinated by the language, the way you communicate uh, non-verbally through dance in a very um, physical and engaged way. Um, and uh, I moved to uh, Southern California in 1997. And I so I was already a ballroom dancer, um, but ballroom dancing is not really a live social practice. The practice is mostly a competitive practice. And so the improvisational structure of the dance as a social um, means of socializing is kind of dead. And uh, when I moved to Southern California, um, another ballroom dancer told me about salsa. So I went um, out salsa dancing because I was looking for something that um, was sort of missing from the practice of ballroom, which is the improvisational interchange um, between two people, you know, in real time. And, uh, and I found this salsa community um, that was thriving in 1997. It was already a huge practice. And uh, the Mayan um, was one of the first places I went. And it um, was a refurbished theater. So, and they'd like taken all the seats out and it was a nightclub and it held, I think, like, I don't know, a thousand people. Um, and they were all dancing salsa and there was live music and um, it, I was completely hooked. Um, and so I started salsa dancing avidly many, many times a week from that moment. And salsa dancing is, uh, of course, the dance is named after the music and it's about responding to this music. So the more, so originally I don't think I was drawn to the music. I was drawn to the the improvisational structure of the dance. But of course that is determined by what's going on musically because it's an improvisational form. I mean, of course there's, there's structure and the songs are written, but there's a lot of improvisation within it, which is the same as the dance. There's structure, um, but you have a lot of freedom within it. So the more involved I got in the dance scene, um, the more I got involved in the music. Right, right. W- where does the name come from, Salsa? So um, the name, uh, there's a lot of people who take credit for calling the dance also or popularizing the, not the dance, but the music. Actually, it wasn't the dance first, it was the music. Popularizing it in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, And there's isolated instances of people using that word um, to describe a song or an album uh, in the music industry. Uh, a lot of people credit Fania Records um, for popularizing um, that term in the early 70s. And it was uh, primarily a marketing term uh, to talk about um, mostly Afro-Cuban music, which uh, wasn't uh, popular to be talking about anything Cuban at that time because it was after the embargo uh, in 1962, was placed on all trade with Cuba. And uh, it was in many different genres. So it was Cuban son, montuno, and Cuban mambo, and danzón, and a variety of other genres. And it was confusing to non-Latinos or even to Latinos. Um, and so it, uh, this term was used sort of as a catch-all, a, a marketing term for uh, Cuban music and especially the Afro-Cuban music that was being updated by Puerto Rican musicians living in New York at that time. Izzy Sanabria, who um, ran Latin New York magazine, also is credits himself with popularizing that term by using it a lot in the magazine. And he was also an MC for a lot of Fania's live shows. Um, and there's other individuals who claim credit for that term. 
but it caught on in the early 70s uh, to describe the updates to mambo and other kinds of Afro-Cuban music that were really catching on in New York and then globally. Uh, and they were very much part of a movement of uh, Latinos uh, developing social political consciousness and like developing the notion of Latino ethnic identity. Yeah. The story of Fania records is, is absolutely fascinating. We could talk about that for, for hours. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's really, really interesting, but I want to get a little deeper into salsa as a, as a global phenomenon. I mean, I've lived in Colombia, I've lived in Canada. I'm speaking to you today from Thailand and there's salsa classes you know, everywhere. Uh, it seems like in just about every major city I've ever been. How did salsa become a global phenomenon? Oh, I think that's got a lot to do with immigration of uh, Latinos around the world. I think, um, funny enough, I think war often plays a part in that. Um, I think some places in Asia, um, it ended up originally there because there were Puerto Rican soldiers stationed there um, listening to that music. But, but um, that's going back um, like to the 70s. But um, I think more recently, you know, it's the, the, the Internet has been really powerful in, being, in spreading these dance forms and the music styles. That I mean, I guess you've, the music has always been easier to, to import, but... Um, dance with the um, popularity of YouTube and the ease of sharing videos, it's much easier for the dance styles to spread um, globally at the click of a mouse. Um, it's a complicated question, though. How do these dance forms spread? I mean, I could give you a history of individual cities um, or locations, right? But I think it's a combination, sort of, if I were to answer it sort of on a global level, I think it's a combination of migration immigration, you know, increased ease of travel, um, and then increased use of the internet, both as a, a platform, a free platform for sharing, and also as a means of commerce. And then I guess I'd have to say that the salsa congresses have probably done the most um, to spread the dance and, and the music as well. But uh, maybe more so the dance globally, and that's sort of a, a branch of the, the salsa dance industry as as commercial machine. Right, that, that sort of leads nicely into talking about your book, uh, Spinning Mamba into Salsa, or sorry, <laughs> Spinning spinning Mambo into Salsa, rather. Um, so what inspired you to write this book? Where, where did this idea come from? So I um, have been teaching salsa dancing at universities since 1999, and uh, when I teach technique classes, I always assign readings on the history of the dance forms that we're studying. And there were great resources when it came to salsa music. But at the time, there weren't any histories of salsa dancing. And after enough years of complaining about this problem and frustration at reading student papers that had um, you know, real sources on the music that were just <laughs> referencing dance, uh, music instead of dance. Um, uh, I finally decided that, well, since I'm a dance historian, I'm actually in a position to fill the void. So that's why I started the project. Um, and my idea was to um, chronicle the history of salsa dancing um, from the Mambo era to the present. Um, but the, you know, the, 
as soon as I started the project, I realized that um, I couldn't uh, talk about the history of the dancing without writing an integrated history of the music as well. And the histories of the music, and one of the things I'm frustrated by about the by in the histories of music, which many of which are excellent, is that they don't really talk about the dancing in any sustained or detailed way. And so I couldn't do the same thing with with my book, I had to really like write an integrated discussion of what was happening in the music and how that was affecting the dance and how the dance was affecting the music because they developed um, co- concurrently and they influenced each other deeply. I wonder if, so my, my academic background is in, in history and I've, as I was preparing for this interview, I was, I was really curious about, about your process. Like how does a hist- historian of dance, um, what sources do they rely on? Um, and I wanted to ask you, so, well, basically just that. I mean, what was your methodology for, for researching this book? Well, lucky for me, uh, there still were, and now there are fewer, but there still were at the time people alive who um, started dancing in the late 40s and early 1950s when um, the Mambo craze gripped New York and then later other locales. And so I actually was able to find people who were in their 70s and 80s and even 90s who were still dancing in that style. Um, And there were a few places in Florida and New York where they would gather to dance. So I went and found them. I did a lot of hanging out with them, dancing with them. And then the the vast majority of my my data came from in-depth interviews that I did with over 100 individuals. Um, So oral history. Um, and then I of course found, um, written archival sources and there's a few films and videos, uh, as well. And then I did, um, reconstruction on my own body. So, um, I, you know, I know very well the modern salsa styles and many of them because I've been practicing them and teaching them for so long. And then I learned these older styles that were not really ever codified and taught by hanging out. And then I, um, did some reconstruction of these different styles and compared them through my own body. It's intelligence. And also I did some performances where I put these together styles next to each other. Yes. I'm sure I'm leaving out some sources, but. Well, I'm, I'm curious when you're, when you're sitting down with these, these people, I mean, just generally what's, what sort of questions would you ask them to get a sense of, of how their dance uh, style had developed? Oh, well, I just, I mostly got their stories. Um, you know, I asked them how they started dancing. Um, and really the, this, the conversation really flowed quite night, quite easily from there. I mean, especially these old timers were so excited to share this history with me. So uh, many of them who had worked professionally, um, as dancers in the fifties had these thick strap books of, um, photographs and newspaper articles about the work they had done in the Mambo. Um, so often that helped them a lot in uh, recalling events and stories. Um, but it was really just listening to their stories about this passion and their love for the music and the dance. And especially these old timers, they talked about the music as much, if not more than talking about the dancing, because for them, it wasn't really separable, the music and the dance. And they, they were so excited to talk about all of these great um, musicians, especially from the Mambo era. Mambo! 
where where are these people coming from? Are they uh, first generation Americans, Puerto Ricans? Uh, where? Uh, so a lot of them were Puerto Ricans, either um, grew uh, born and grew up in in New York or from Puerto Rico who immigrated. Uh, African Americans or uh, African Americans whose families immigrated from somewhere else in the Caribbean, like the English speaking Caribbean. Uh, Jews, a lot of Jews, um, some uh, Italian uh, immigrants or immigrant families. I'm trying to think other major ethnic groups. But it was, you know, uh, one of the beautiful things about salsa um, and mambo that predated it is that it, the music draws from so many um, cultures uh, and the music draws people from so many cultures. Um, and I think the reason that um, the term salsa, uh, I think, was so successful is because salsa is a sauce that you can put uh, many different ingredients together and it still tastes good. Uh, it's just a little different, you know, and I think that's what um, the music continues to draw together people from really different communities and draw from those different communities in continuing to uh, spice that sauce differently. Yeah, it's such a, it's such a joyful music, you know, uh, and you're absolutely right about it bringing people together. I think Donald Trump would do well to, uh, to take some salsa classes. <laughs> I don't know if I want to see that. <laughs> <laughs> no, neither do I. Yeah, let's let's move on. Um, <laughs> so, what is what is mambo, and how did mambo sort of? Well, well, just I'll, I'll ask you another difficult question. What exactly is mambo, and how did mambo, in some ways, give birth to salsa? Uh, well, mambo is a music style that developed in Cuba through a blending of the Afro-Cuban son, dance son and uh, to a certain extent rumba, although less so, and uh, American jazz. Um, the, the music, people sort of agree that it was born in Cuba. There's a little discrepancy about which um, artist really invented the mambo. Um, but uh, a lot of mambo-developed music, and then especially the dance form, developed in New York City in the late 1940s and 1950s. Um, and the dance form developed through um, uh, those Cuban dance styles mixed with uh, American swing dancing and uh, through other influences that were there in New York from other immigrants in that you know New York melting pot at the time. And the dance involved uh, short periods of partnered turns um, borrowed from swing dancing using the base of Afro-Cuban son and then so periods of solo dancing where each partner, the man and the woman, would separate from each other, face each other, and do a little sort of challenge of improvised idiosyncratic footwork and body movements um, in a similar tradition to Cuban rumba or Puerto Rican bomba um, or break dancing of today. Um, it's a tradition that's continued. Um, and so then um, that music... Um, continued to evolve in the 1960s and 70s, um, largely with Puerto Ricans living in New York. Uh, and the dance uh, continued to evolve as well. And the dance uh, began in the 70s somewhat, but much more in the 80s and 90s to incorporate more and more turns from hustle dancing, which is the partnered form of disco dancing. Uh, and so salsa dancing today 
it differs from mambo dancing on many, many points, which is a, a huge feature of my book is to describe in great detail how those um, dance styles differ and, and how they relate to what happened in the music. Um, but one of them is the incorporation of so many turns in modern day salsa and um, less focus on the, the solo work, which um, today they call shines when partners split up and do their own um, steps without touching each other. So I know a lot of academics don't like speaking in sound bites, and I get that. Um, but if you had to boil down your, the thesis of your book, Spinning Mambo into Salsa, what would it be? What, what did you discover during the course of researching and, and writing this book? <laughs> yeah, you're right. That's, <laughs> I, can't, I can't pick one thing. Um, uh, I can pick one of the, the, the most important things for me uh, that one of the most important messages I wanted to communicate through this book is how um, closely connected the music and dance used to be and how I think that the development of the dance industry around salsa separated the music and the dance in a way that I don't think was good for either of them uh, in the service of profit <laughs> Uh, in service of commerce. And I think that um, a lot of the changes in the dance that uh, evolved were the direct result of the separation of the dance from the music. Uh, And so bringing those two back together in closer dialogue, I think would um, be a positive direction for both of them. And uh, I'm hoping that my book is a step in that direction. When you're talking about the, the connection between the music and the dance, are you talking about live live musicians? That's part of it, um, for sure. At the, the Palladium, which was ground zero for the development of Mambo, um, the music was always live. Um, and, uh, they, and this is uh, in New York City, right? Yeah. It was on Broadway and 53rd in Manhattan. And uh, salsa dancers in the modern era um, since the mid nineties when this sort of commercialization of salsa dancing started to take off and um, mostly dancers dance to recorded music and they teach to counts. And so this very different way of teaching and relating to the music developed because it had to be structured and counted in order for people to teach it in these classes. Well, if you could talk a bit about the the Palladium Ballroom and and how that fits into your research. I, I found that really interesting reading your, your website. Well, um, everyone who dances salsa today um, knows about the Palladium Ballroom, even if they don't know uh, details about it, because it, it's considered the, the birthplace of the mambo, which salsa dancers know is uh, the foundation of the dance they dance today. Um, and it was a really special place in the history of American culture, because it was the first time that Um, Latin music was featured in midtown Manhattan in such a successful way. Um, So the Savoy Ballroom in Harlem had been, many people often cite that as one of the the first, um, if not the first integrated, racially integrated ballrooms in America. Um, And that was the the site where swing dancing and Lindy Hop developed in Harlem, but it was in Harlem. It was in a predominantly black neighborhood. Um, and so when whites went there, it, it was into a black neighborhood. Um, but the Palladium brought Latin music and um, 
all sorts of different people of color into midtown Manhattan, and partly because of its location and partly because it was the moment when Latin dancing became the hottest thing in America, people from uh, all different classes and races and ethnic uh, necessities and uh, nationalities came to the Palladium. Um, And uh, it was this really um, unique uh, sort of enclave in America before the civil rights movement where blacks and Puerto Ricans and movie stars and, uh, you know, everybody was dancing together and uh, really loving the same music. The three bands that are most renowned for their role at the Palladium Amarachito and his Afro-Cubans, Tito Rodriguez and Tito Puente. Um, and there were usually two bands a night and people danced and they danced. Uh, there was a show on Wednesday nights. There was an amateur competition and a professional show that was very well attended. Um, and that was the night um, that the most celebrities um, and white people came because it was there was the show and the the big and the competition. But other nights as well, they had live music on um, Wednesdays, uh, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. And the other nights um, were um, equally well attended, although by slightly different ethnic groups. And this is where the dancing developed. And I, you know, I have collected stories from um, many of the dancers that um, became famous and launched careers through um, dancing at the Palladium. So they started the Palladium and then they went on to perform in Atlantic City, in Miami, in Vegas, in Los Angeles, um, taking their Mambo act or some of them developed more extensive acts that included other kinds of dancing as well. And and this is in the 1950s we're talking about, like the, the heyday of this place. Yeah, so it started programming Latin music in 1948, I believe, and it closed in 1966. There was a drug raid in 62, and it lost its liquor license in 62, so things sort of started to go downhill from there. So the 50s was really the heyday of uh, the Palladium, and it was known as the the home of the Mambo. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think there there's there's ever been another place like it. It was an enormous a ballroom. It was on the second story of the building on 53rd and Broadway. Um, and it was, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I wish I could have been there. I, yeah, I guess. I guess it it, uh, it looks like a blast. I'll, I'll post a, a link to your site that focuses more specifically on the Palladium because it's, it's really, really interesting. Um, another thing I read about you is that and correct me if I'm wrong, but you prefer New York style salsa to LA salsa. Is that is that correct? Oh yeah, that is true. Why? <laughs> Why? Maybe because I got old. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know I, I started with LA style salsa because I started in Los Angeles and I loved it when I was young. But um, New York style um, is. I think it's also because I'm a woman and New York style offers a lot more uh, autonomy for the woman to express herself. So um, the, even the basic step of the New York style, it starts out with the woman coming forward into the man's space. So he invites her in. Um, whereas LA style starts with the man like charging into her space. Um, the uh, LA style includes um a lot of acrobatics, which I loved when I was young and tends to be very fast. 
but the experience is sort of being used as a, a tool in the man's performance of his own virtuosity. Right. Whereas in New York style, where it tends to be slower music and it tends to be much more um, about the rhythm and the playful re relationship to the music, I feel like I have a lot more space to express myself even when I'm in the follower's role. New York style also, I just like the relationship of the music um, to the music much better. So it, it's the the on to um, style is uh, the relationship to the music that New York style dancers use, which is um, the the rhythm that the Cuban son uses, and uh, it people so often describe it as this sort of funkier feeling. It's a right off the rhythm, um, so I feel like I'm um, it just sort of invites my body to relate to the the music in a much more playful and interesting way whereas the on one st uh, rhythm that L la style dancers tend to use is um much more straight and it it feels less um less deep in how i'm relating to the music so my last question before for you before i let you go is what what do you see the future of of global salsa to to be like because we're in, we seem to be in a, in a cultural moment here, like I, I mentioned earlier, where salsa really is a global phenomenon, and it seems to be very popular in you know multiple destinations throughout the world. So, do you see this as sort of a trend, and it'll uh, salsa will will um, not be this popular for much longer? Or I'm I'm curious about how you see the future, I guess, of global salsa. Yeah, um, I don't think it's going anywhere. Whether it'll continue to Increase in popularity, I, I, I'm not sure about that because what I see now is a lot of people getting who are into salsa now branching out and getting interested in bachata and kizomba and zouk. So there's you know new newer dance styles that are filling a similar role in people's lives. So it may be that salsa is now becoming you know less. Uh, less new, so less exciting. Um, but I don't think it's going anywhere. I mean, I'm, of course, really biased, right? I, don't, I think it's way cooler than any of these other <laughs> forms and way deeper. I mean, I think the music and the history and the movement it is, offers so much more for practitioners. Um, but gosh, I don't know the future. <laughs> That's, I, I don't have a... I love I'm asking historians about the future. I'm, I'm like, what? I'm a historian. <laughs> yeah. Future. Yeah, if you if you want to troll a historian, ask them to predict uh, twenty years in the future for sure. <laughs> um, Juliet, it was a real pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Juliette McMaines. And if you'd like to learn more about her and her work, I will post show notes at travelsandmusic.com slash salsa. And I'll also post a link to a fascinating documentary um, that you probably you probably haven't seen. It's a few years old and it's, it's not exactly easy to find. I don't think it's been broadcast for quite a while. You'll notice that at one point during our conversation, during my conversation with Juliette rather, I, I mentioned Fania Records, which is a it's a really fascinating story. It's probably the most storied 
a famous and influential Latin record label in the U.S. And PBS some years ago made a really good documentary on them and, uh, and the whole Latin music scene of the 1970s and the 1960s. And I'll post that documentary as, as well at travelsandmusic.com slash salsa. Before I let you go, a very quick reminder that if you're enjoying this podcast and you'd like me to keep on making episodes, please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a rating and review. They are enormously important and they put a very large smile on my face when I see a new one. So thank you as always for listening and for your support. Until next time, remember that life is short. So if you feel like dancing, dance now while you still have the opportunity. And I'll talk to you again very soon. Mm -hmm.